And we're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Consuming political news is like drinking from a fire hose. Each day, a new tweet, a new storyline, and a new thing to take in. It can be exhausting, and often these national conversations obscure important topics like our fundamental right to vote. Well, we here at On Second Thought want to shift that paradigm with something we're calling slow democracy. Like the slow food movement, we're looking at the sources and alterations and underpinnings of participation democracy. And we're starting with the legal system governing fair elections. Big topic in our state. Today, GPB politics reporter Stephen Fowler joins me for a look at the machinations that affect how we vote. Hello, Stephen. Good morning. Well, let's set the stage here. Georgia mirrors the federal model, three branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial. So to be clear, governor, state house, and Senate, and courts. All three play a role with voting in elections. And here is Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger from an early your interview you did talking about his perspective. We don't want to become a, a top-down ogre like sometimes the federal government is to Georgia, but we want to make sure that we're helping our you know friends out there at the county level. Well, so what does the secretary mean when he talks about the executive part of Georgia's elections? So, Virginia, the executive part is the secretary of state's office, and it's a state government agency. And uh, the ogre that Secretary Raffensperger is talking about is we have one secretary of state's office. We have 159 counties. And so the secretary of state's office is where, you know, all of the filings and the fees and the like the big picture organization comes with these elections. And. And we have the different county elections officials and local elections and local things run. So it'll be a little bit different in each county, depending on who's elected to fill those things and how they do things and how many people they have. And so the executive part is kind of there to keep things within the bumpers, uh, to keep things rolling down and to troubleshoot any problems that people have and to provide the top level administration of here is the big sandbox you can play in with elections and here's specific rules. And it's up to the counties to be able to actually enforce them and run things and do the day-to-day business. All right, so then where do we find the guidelines for running what goes on in that sandbox and election? How do we know what to follow to make sure things are running smoothly and correctly? We know, Virginia, there are a lot of documents out there. There's a lot of rules. There's a lot of regulations. There's the state election code, which you can find in the larger Georgia code. It spells out everything from qualifying fees to run for office to how old you can be to run for a certain office to everything from, you know, if, you know, if it rains on a second Thursday, then you do things this way. There's not actually something in there about raining on a second Thursday, but there's that level of detail that has to trickle down from the state government level to the local and county officials. So you've got the state election code, you've got guidelines that are sent out by the Secretary of State's office, and you have a lot of things that even are posted in polling places on election day to say, here is what you need to bring, here is how you need to do it, here's where to go if you have questions. All right. So let's transition to the legislative side of things, because it was big news this session when lawmakers approved HB 316 that authorized the state to purchase new voting machines. Also made a number of changes to the state election code. Here's Republican Representative Barry Fleming of Harlem, co-sponsor of this year's big voting legislation, chair of the Secure Accessible Fair Elections Commission. He's speaking here last December about the public's relationship with the legislature. We will have public input through our hearing process. We will have experts come and testify uh, before the legislature. So really they will have a chance to hear again almost everything the Safe Commission 
has heard. So walk us through the legislature's responsibilities and interaction with the electoral system and infrastructure. So we just talked about the state election code. That has to be passed and tweaked by the state legislature. So the Secretary of State's office and the executive side is kind of there for enforcing it. But the legislature is the one that has to write it and craft it and go through the process of hearings and finding things out. The safe commission that was mentioned, that was something that the Secretary of State's office did. It includes Included lawmakers and local county officials and kind of bundled it all together where you had all the different parts and pieces and the public to kind of uh, show how all of the different uh, pieces play together to figure out how these new voting machines, this new system would work together. So the legislature is the one that had to say in HB 316, we authorize the state of Georgia to pick XYZ types of machines that do ABC things. And then they're also the ones that had to say in the budget, we authorize the state to spend this amount of money to uh, pay for these new machines and do the training. So they're the ones that kind of uh, write the checks and balances, see what I did there, to make sure things go correctly for the state to then oversee. All right. So we are not, as most voters, walking in there thinking, reading all of the code, you know, absorbing all of that kind of information, but we're interacting with the machines. So as you've reported, lawmakers are very close to selecting a new system that will be ready for New Year's, the next year election. Who is actually picking them? So it's through the official state purchasing uh, contracting part. There's a manual for that. So it's not somebody just in a back office going eeny, meeny, miny, mo with our electoral future. There's very specific rules and guidelines for uh, the calls for the contract, the documents that have to be provided, the checks that have to be done, the timeline that has to be followed. So, you know, all of those documents are there. They're not exciting to read, but if you have questions about who's picking these voting machines and what guidelines they have to follow, it's all spelled out there for you. It's not the most accessible thing to read, but that's why you and I are having these conversations here uh, to pick the guidelines. So the Secretary of State's office works with the Department of Purchasing and everything to make sure that a fair contract process is gone through. And then at the end, we're almost at the part where they announce the award. So they announce we are going with X company to do our voting machines. And here's the plan. And here's how much we're paying. And the citizens have played an important part throughout the entire way. They gave feedback to the legislature. They've given feedback to the Secretary of State's office. There have been lots of uh, hearings and petitions. And, you know, it's a very participatory system, even if it doesn't feel the most accessible. But that's kind of by design of all of the government, you know, documents and contracts and things that have to go through. All right, let's get to the meat of today's topic, which is the judicial branch. Organizations and individuals can file lawsuits to get the court's opinion on certain election-related laws and decisions. We've heard a lot about that. Here's voting rights nonprofit group Fair Fight CEO Lauren Gro-Wargo. The actions and inactions of the state of Georgia that have led to the systematic suppression of the votes of all people, in particular voters of color, will not stop. We will keep fighting. And we should note that the founder of that organization is Stacey Abrams. Gro Wargo was her longtime campaign manager. So before we delve into specific cases and questions, when do courts get involved in the electoral process? So you can't just file a lawsuit and say, I lost the election. I, you know, I demand that the court change that or I demand a recount. 
going back to the state code and the legislative and the executive side of things, there are certain rules and regulations for when recounts or redos or any sort of action can be taken. So in the cases of uh, recounts or something like that, if it's within a certain thing, it automatically happens. Sometimes people can file suit for that. Uh, in the case of, you know, on Election Day, there were long lines and there were some machines malfunctioning and other things like that. Um, people will go to the courts and get an emergency order and say, can you keep this polling place open 30 more minutes because the first 30 minutes the doors were locked. People like citizens can do that or somebody representing them? Well, you know, a lawyer, somebody who can file things before the court. But, you know, people who are affected by that, you know, somebody in Minnesota can't file a lawsuit, say, hey, keep that polling place open. You right. know, it has to be here in Georgia. But then when it comes to the laws, uh, you know, the uh, pending list of pending voters or the exact match system, the judicial system can, uh, you know, basically you ask the courts to weigh in on the constitutionality and legality of laws and decisions that are made. So the courts, uh, it's not asking, filing a lawsuit, asking the court's opinion on something isn't automatically saying that something is right or wrong, but there are certain parameters as to what can be challenged. And as we see now, there are a number of lawsuits challenging certain things and arguments are being made for the legality and the questions surrounding how some of the decisions are made. We're doing some slow democracy today with Stephen Fowler. He's a reporter here at GPB and has been reporting on uh, what's going on in the fair elections fight. But we're, we're doing a little bit part civics lesson, a little bit breakdown of government. Oftentimes people complain about things work and how they do or don't work. And we're getting a little sense, digging into peeling back the layers and seeing how they do or they are ideally supposed to. Can you, Stephen, give us examples of the court actually changing the way election laws work, whether it be the outcome of an election or any other scenarios? Well, sure. If you look back to last November's very drawn out, very contentious gubernatorial election, you had a series of court rulings about how to count absentee and provisional ballots. So uh, people filed suit saying, you know, this county did not properly count absentee ballots or their provisional ballots that need counting and something like that. And a judge weighed in and said, you have, uh, you know, this county, you have until next week to count these things. So it extended the deadline for some of the things. Recently, we had a few lawsuits dismissed because of changes to a law that came in HB 316 and other elections, um, other election law changes that happened where the court didn't say, okay, this has to change, but the lawsuit was dismissed because the parties who filed the suit said, okay, I filed the suit, the state changed this law, now I'm happy with how this works. So there are numerous examples of you know, the courts, maybe if not directly saying you must change this thing, but the lawsuit being filed and the process, because it's a long, drawn out process of hearing both sides, things get changed. Well, it's like a two cases now working their way through the courts. One says that the state's current outdated voting machines are not secure and that the state should use hand-marked paper ballots for future elections. District Court Judge Amy Totenberg is hearing that case. What are some possible outcomes that she could legally prescribe? Well, what they're asking for in this hand-marked paper ballots case is to change the way Georgia runs its elections for the upcoming November elections. And so it is possible that the judge could say, you know, these machines are a security risk. You must conduct the November elections, 
using hand-marked paper ballots with these certain steps involved for, you know, people who need a touchscreen machine for disability purposes or other things. Um, there are very specific remedies that the court can provide. It's not just, yep, use paper ballots, figure it out yourself. There's a lot of steps and checks and balances there. It could be possible that the judge could say, Again, it's too close to the election. They're about to implement these new machines. You know, we'll make sure that the new machines and new systems include boom, boom, boom things. So really, uh, there's a hearing next week in that case, and we will know more after the two-day hearing. The case was brought against the state. So what is the state's argument here? Well, one of the state's argument, like I said, Virginia, is that it's too close to the elections and it's too close to how things are done. And so, uh, you know, they're making the argument that it would be an undue burden to make the state completely change the way everything works last minute. Uh, Additionally, one of the arguments is that these new voting machines are about to happen. They're about to be implemented. People are going to be trained. They're more up to date. They're more secure. So this lawsuit is kind of irrelevant. The judge has not dismissed the case yet, so she thinks that there are some merits to the argument. But the state says, we're going to fix this anyways. Let us fix this. Let us do our jobs. The other lawsuit you've been following deals with a much more, let's say, existential voting issues. Stacey Abrams Fair Fight Group and others allege several violations of the Federal Civil Rights Act with the way that Georgia runs its election. So give us a big picture judicial landscape there. Well, big picture, several years ago, uh, a ruling, Shelby County versus Holder, changed the way certain states were able to make changes to how elections were run. It removed a provision that would allow certain jurisdictions, they would have to get permission from the federal government to change things. So now the state has changed things without the federal oversight. And this big sweeping lawsuit says basically big picture, the way Georgia elections are run violates several amendments to the Constitution and needs to be changed and checked. So what does all of this mean for our democracy? Does it change how you and I go about our days? It does, because voting is an important part of our democracy, and how we vote is an important part of that. If people don't feel that they have uh, secure, accessible, fair elections, like that commission was named, then maybe they won't vote, or maybe they don't think their vote will count, and then fewer and fewer people will participate in things. Uh, But also, all of this is out there. There are documents, there's rules and regulations, and asking questions is important because not everything makes sense. It's not like you turn on a computer, uh, open up the Internet, and say how to vote, and it's all there. So it's important to ask questions and push back when there are things that are confusing and don't make sense. And uh, for things like this, this conversation to happen, to kind of break things down where people have maybe a little bit more trust in how their vote works. Well, now that you have explained that to us, I feel like we've eaten our vegetables. Now we have some dessert, a little legislative palate cleanser on something that you might have missed. Current Georgia code contains a statute that penalizes people for scratching serial numbers off of machinery, washing and sewing machines, firearms and vacuum cleaners and such. Well, this spring, Representative Josh McLaurin introduced a bill that would scrub a few items off that list. Things McLaurin proposed as anachronistic, dictaphones, adding machines, comptometers, and gasp phonographs. Vinyl junkies and sellers across the state cried foul. The 31-year-old Democrat from Sandy Springs told Eleven Alive that he listens to music on his computer, though he does have some friends who collect LPs. 
We're assuming not all of his friends are club DJs. In fact, vinyl album sales have been growing steadily for 13 consecutive years. 16.8 million were sold in 2018. That's according to Nielsen's tracking. And if you have to play them on something... Well, you may not have that old wind-up model McLaurin says he's targeting. And talk about anachronisms. Which band sold the most records in the age of streaming music? The Beatles on top again. Stephen, Representative McLaurin took quite a ribbing from Georgia record store owners, did his bill to chuck phonographs into the ash heap of history pass. For the record, no. (laughs) Couldn't resist. Should we hold on to our dictaphones for the next great resurgence? Only time will tell. Well, GBB Stephen Fowler with some slow food style democracy and some desserts. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. We're going to leave you with someone who knows from vinyl. Here is the adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the wheels of steel. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, LaRaven Taylor, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Allison Kraussman is our intern. Don Smith, our dean of grammar. Amy Kylie is senior producer. Sarah Sharp. Ariari is Managing Editor for GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott, inviting you to join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. Are you curious about something that is happening in our democracy and you just don't know the process? Well, we have time for a little slow democracy from now and then, uh, now and again here on On Second Thought. All right, that's it for today. We're going to see you on the next spin. Master, the cup, the cup, the cup, master. Master, the cup, master.